0: can be a bit of a puzzle. Looking back on it nearly 100 years later, it's hard to see it as anything more than a very bad idea. No one seems to have actually abided by the rules, and indeed the most notorious points of reference for the so-called noble experiment are the incredibly popular illegal bars and the organized crime that supported them. Today on HI101, we'll start by discussing why anyone thought any of this was a good plan in the first place. Let's begin. (laughs) Okay, I'm here on HI101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. How's it going? Not too bad. It's How nice are you to doing? have you back on the on the show. That's great to be here. Yeah. So um in front of us we've got a couple little uh little glasses. Indeed. Mystery in which... liquid. Oh, it's not a mystery at all. This is moonshine. Really? Yeah, yeah. So cheers. Cheers. Yeah, this is uh this is moonshine that I've purchased legally. Because we are both adults. Over the age of uh, over the age of nineteen, which is the drinking age here, and it is absolutely illegal for me to go in buy a bottle of moonshine. This is apple moonshine, by the way. It's delicious. It's very tasty. It's weirdly strong, though, isn't it? It's very strong. Very sweet. It's not that high of an alcohol content. It's about twenty percent. I would have thought more. I would have thought more too. It it's got it's got some punch. It doesn't have that burn, but it's got some punch. Yeah. I think it's apple flavored because I don't think we'd want just straight moonshine. Right. Because moonshine is a very crude drink, man. It is based in people making it out of old car radiators in their barns in the rural United States. What's the actual base? Corn grain?
1: mash. Corn mash.
0: Corn mash. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you can, you can make moonshine out of pretty much anything. <laughs> the definition on moonshine is kind of shaky. Basically, it's any distilled uh, liquor made by an individual. Generally, people add illegally into that definition, although obviously, since I purchased this at a liquor store, uh, it's not illegal.
1: When I think moonshine, I think bathtub.
0: Yep. Bathtub gin, they call it, yeah. or uh, white lightning. There's, <laughs> there's a few pretty good names for it. <laughs> but yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting taste. I might buy this again. I mostly bought this for the show because why not? Very appropriate. Kind of cheap, actually, which, again, is is quite appropriate. But, yeah, this whole thing, this this drink entirely comes out of people desperate to get drunk and not really having the means to do so. <laughs> As I said, this is 20%. It often got up to uh, 75 or 80% when people were making it home. Right. Because there were no controls on these things. We'll get a little bit more into the production of Moonshine a little bit later, but uh, I felt like this was a really strong starting point to talk about prohibition in the United States. Agreed. Which is a very, very odd time in history. Mostly because it seems like it's one of those rare times where a smaller but more vocal portion of, of the population manages to get something pushed through that maybe overall people aren't particularly interested in
1: well and and for for me i know that it happened Mm -hmm. but i don't have a real good read on how i mean they called it
0: or it's it's known colloquially sometimes as the noble experiment (laughs) (laughs) and really what it comes from is sort of a, a sense of of moral superiority there was this uh there was this idea especially around the turn of the 20th century, that there were certain things about American society that were uh, backwards, that were uh, holding things up a little bit, that were kind of breaks on society. Compared to what, though? Well, I mean, that's a great question. This was known as the Progressive Era, because there was a major focus on elimination of inefficiencies would be the the easiest way to sum it up but they were looking for inefficiencies in a number of areas including you know political corruption was a was a major part of the politi- uh, of the progressive era because yeah that whole period between like the civil war and the turn of the 20th century was pretty messy when it comes to politics you know this is the era that would see the uh, the american senate become elected rather than appointed because they felt that that would have more of a control on political corruption because you don't have that appointed position that could just kind of be handed out to friends of friends of friends. Right. Yeah. You also saw trust busting. So breaking up monopolies, things like that. This is the era of the robber barons basically controlling entire industries on their own and setting the prices as they will. You know, you've got your Rockefellers and such making their fortunes at this point. But there's also this other side of the progressive era saying that there should be a focus on scientific progress that just because we've done something certain ways all of this time, doesn't mean that there aren't better ways that we should be looking for it. And that this scientific progress should be applied to kind of all parts of society, not necessarily just, you know, your, your traditional sciences. So you got a lot of kind of social science type sociology, anthropology kind of things going on here. Which all sounds great until you realize that this is 120 years ago, and their ideas
1: of social science are, um, I suppose distasteful. Could work. Yeah, I was gonna say this is all sounding pretty okay so far, but well, you
0: know, and then you add in the eugenics, and eh, yeah, all of a sudden we got some problems on our hands, <laughs> don't we? Yeah, it's it's one of those it's one of those examples of of a reasonable starting premise kind of getting co-opted and run right off the rails when you get when you get the uh the second iteration of the ku klux klan being all for progressivism all of a sudden maybe you don't want to be part of that movement anymore even if you're a more moderate component of it right yeah but yeah i mean a lot of a lot of what we're talking about in the progressive era really is an advancement of rights towards anyone who isn't a wealthy white man basically Because this is the point in time where at least they tried to get some better rights for African Americans who, you know, had been freed from slavery under the 13th Amendment, but did not have it really that much better at all for a very long time. And so there are a lot of movements that are interested in, in forwarding those rights, but also rights for women became... A, a massive political touchstone at this point in time, and this is where you're going to see the uh, the suffrage movement. There's a lot of very strong movements towards controlling our health, our well-being, uh, labor laws, things like that. Is th- these are these are all going to be rolled up in this progressive era? So mixed bag, but a lot of good stuff coming out of it. I would say more good than bad. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, really, really, what you get is. It's 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 really interesting to read about too because the way that women become involved in these social movements is so clever that you can't help but like root for them quite a bit. Like you get this whole thing where it's and and you, you read the you read the anti suffrage rhetoric and it's it's just it's it's horrendous. We're not even going to delve into that stuff because I, I don't feel like going over it. But you know, there's big. there's a lot of there's a lot of arguments about you know the nature of uh, men versus women and how you know the the. Rationality, etc., and and women went, okay, fine. If that's how you want to treat it, then we're going to become the the mothers of this country. We are going to become the nurturers, and what we're going to become, uh, what we're going to be concerned with is uh, the well being of everyone around us. And by the way, that means you have to stop making children work in factories when they're eight years old, because that's what a good mother would do, right? Is is protect her child. And they kind of went, I don't know a good way to deal with this line of questioning so you know it, it actually got quite a bit of, of political traction you know women started organizing into various organizations to forward these causes uh, the the main one would be the the women's Christian temperance movement which was concerned with temperance you know the fight against consumption of alcohol of any kind but also you know suffrage and and labor laws this is the uh, that, that was founded in in 1873 so I mean, there's all a build-up to this progressive era, but you know, it's, it's, um, it all kind of comes to a head after 1890 or so you get things like the food and drug administration founded in 1902. Ah. Uh, this is on the heels of an era where basically anyone could sell, you know, patent medicines, which were usually like a, a really killer mixture of like alcohol and also opium. And yeah, also... I remember
1: reading about some kind of, of wine that was laced with cocaine Mm -hmm. that was endorsed by the Pope at the time.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Everyone, everyone used this stuff. Yeah. This is a a really important thing to realize about this, this era is that most of the stuff that we think of as like the major controlled substances readily available from your local pharmacist. (laughs) Heroin is a trademarked name for uh, an opiate that would be prescribed to you by your doctor or, you know, even if you're just having real bad back pains,
1: I I I had heard actually heroin used to be prescribed for addiction, mm-hmm. which is which is yeah basically funny. basically your your general
0: recipe for a medicine at this point in time is do you need more energy if so it's going to be a mix of alcohol and some other stuff in there and some cocaine peppy right up <laughs> um oftentimes it would be stuff that would like there there was this there was this there was this notion that. If a medicine made you do something, then it was obviously working somehow. So a lot of times it would uh, contain a laxative of some sort or possibly a diuretic or, um, you know, a lot of them would contain Ipecac to make you vomit because at least it's doing something. It must be good. Right. Or say uh, that the problem is that you're either in pain or can't sleep and need something to bring you down. Then it's a mixture of alcohol and heroin or other opiates, whatever. Yeah. Happens to be available, and again, <laughs> some other stuff to to make them make some things happen, so that you know it's working. Patent medicines, man, they were whack. Yeah, there was so much nonsense in there. There were no rules about what needed to be written on the bottles or on the packages. It's weird. A lot of these kind of still exist in certain forms, just with like really careful legal wording. Some of them became well-known soda brands. I mean, Coca-Cola started Coca-Cola. as a as a patent right. medicine, for example. Pretty, pretty much any of the the major brands actually would have started as patent medicine. Yeah. It was, it was a, it was a crazy frontier time for medication, man. 1902 food and drug administration goes into place. They start doing things like requiring scientific testing and <laughs> <laughs> backing up all of your claims with factual evidence, just complete <laughs> buzzkills, Right. Yeah. Now all of a sudden you can't have, you know, Dr. Weber's, uh, miraculous ointment slap on your back and it's full of cayenne peppers and, and cocaine <laughs> it's <laughs> but b- boy does it tingle so it must be doing something yeah
1: so who's spearheading all of this or is it is it just a natural tendency of society to to try and better itself you get groups like
0: the wctu the the women's christian temperance movements that right. are that are forwarding these these causes and it's, it's political lobbying is what it comes down to, right? Because what we're putting in place here are government government controls on what's being put into people's bodies. And in a lot of ways, this was, this was pushed against not only by the people who stood to benefit from having these things on the market, but also from a philosophical or, or a political stance because in general, the United States has really been about small government, right? The less government intervention in your life, the better. And this was seen as a, a severe uh, infringement on personal rights by the government. Not necessarily because people wanted to be eating green beans with formaldehyde in them. <laughs> but because... But they wanted
1: the option to.
0: Well, they, ne- yeah, they, wanted, <laughs> they wanted the personal freedom to decide whether they wanted to eat <laughs> the green beans with, with, with formaldehyde in them. <laughs> and it's not the place of big government to tell them that they can't eat formaldehyde no matter how poisonous it might be. <laughs> there were some really interesting experiments. I, I forgot to write down the doctor's name, uh, but there were these experiments at the time uh, in, in the early days of the FDA, or sorry, just before the FDA was founded, it was kind of a precursor to it, where he put out this ad for about a, for, for a number of uh, young men who had no pre-existing health conditions. They got full physical checkups beforehand and all of this that were willing to be experimented on for the sake of basically public health. And what they would do was all of them would sit down and they ate every meal together, every single meal, every single day. And uh, the people running the experiment would put different food additives into different meals without necessarily telling them what it was going to be. Like they, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to influence in any way. So lots of times the meals were just whatever you see on your plate is whatever you, whatever you get. But, Then, you know, every once in a while, there's some, there's some borax in the mashed potatoes and they'd watch every single one of these guys get like horribly ill and they'd go, wow, we should not be letting people put this into people's food. I guess, how else are you really going to know? That's the weird thing about this age of medicine is that there's a lot of experiments that happen that would never get greenlit today. And yet they're crucial to our understanding of medicine and we wouldn't really be where we are without it. I mean, you you know, now you could basically hype, you you, you could run in vitro simulations of what Borax does to something or, you know, run these on animals or, you know, even that's really not an option in a lot of cases anymore. A lot of stuff when you see, you know, not tested on animals or not tested on humans, usually that means that's because people already did that test. Right. Somebody
1: already knows this is okay. We have the
0: luxury these days of not testing on animals because those tests have already happened. Um, Don't get me wrong. I'm all for not testing horrendous poisonous things on living beings. However, I I do just want to point that out that when, say, because that happened at
1: one point in time, there's a lot we
0: know. Exactly. Exactly. Now I do, because I hear this all the time and it drives me bonkers. And I know this is off, off topic. I do want to point out this has nothing to do with that whole, you know, well, if the Nazis hadn't done this experiment or that experiment, we wouldn't know this or that about whatever topic. Usually the one that comes up is hypothermia. Mm. Complete myth. None of the the science that they did on that stuff was properly documented or medically relevant. It was... It, it it was just as horrendous as it sounds and it had no positive medical benefits. We didn't learn anything new from those. So just wanna nip that in the bud real quick. <laughs> uh it's a good clarification. Nothing personal against you, of course, but it's it's just one of those things I hear it all the time, and I don't I don't know how to quash that myth. I actually hadn't heard it before. Oh really? It's uh, it's I, I don't like that one. It's very pervasive and, and very distasteful. It's let's not apologize for the Nazis, everybody. Can we just can we just maybe? Can we just not do that? Can we just That'd all be great. just can we make, make a quick <laughs> agreement? Can we just like initial somewhere? <laughs> Jeez. What does this all have to do with temperance movement? Uh, to know that we actually have to back up even further to something called the Second Great Awakening, which was this period of religious revival uh, in the United States. And this is uh, something that I talked about a little bit more extensively on the Mormonism ep- episode with Gary because the second great awakening is the period that actually gave rise to the Latter-day Saints movement. Uh, This is also where you're going to see the Jehovah's witnesses come out of. Uh, This is where you see this huge growth of Methodist and Baptist denominations in the United States, all of which have this uh, really strong emphasis on social responsibility as being part of your spiritual life, which means that most, most of them have rules within them about, a number of arguably moral choices, like the consumption of alcohol. There's a, a strong uh, injunction against it, for example, in the, the Latter day Saints movement. And it's because it was seen at that point in time as being as much a social problem as it was an individual problem. It was right. seen as a pervasive evil, and it was seen as something that it was the responsibility of good Christian people to fight against, not just within themselves, but to uh, evangelize that aspect of their faith to people around them. And I mean, evangelism is a huge part of all of those traditions anyways. It's all about trying to spread those ideas as much as possible. But in a lot of cases, they'll settle for mandating uh, moral behaviors that are in line with their own beliefs. And In a lot of cases, it is this sort of like ascetic self-denial of of certain indulgences because that's seen as a a very carnal act and very like counter-spiritual instinct to follow. Right. Um, So by denying these earthly desires, you are de facto supporting your own spiritual growth. The other thing that the Second Great Awakening gives us is this promotion of the idea of the woman as being the moral head of the household. So... Again, we get some weirdly sexist stuff going on in here, but basically these denominations tend, and, and I'm not being terribly kind to this, this uh, categorization, but for the, for the functionality of this topic, it, it works. Basically categorizes the men and children as being impulsive and unable to control their own base desires, basically.
1: And, and, that it's and the, did it, I guess, try and reinforce that that was okay for them to be that way?
0: Uh, well, I mean, in some in some respects, yes, because it removes that level of responsibility from them for acting that way. However, it also puts the onus on the the wife to the wife and the mother to keep the husband and children in line, right. make sure that they do continue to act in a spiritual and moral manner. So, I mean, it's not exactly a great step forward, but it does open this door to things like the WCTU later. Where they have this authority morally, if not politically, to kind of step forward and saying,
1: what are you guys doing? This isn't right. Right. And that's reinforced by them having that position as the kind of moral figurehead.
0: Well, exactly. Because they are acting in this moral capacity, not just as head of their own household, but as kind of the head of the households of the nation. Right. In a certain sense, especially when they've organized into larger bodies and and really kind of it it opens that door to them having any say whatsoever in a lot of these things but as these groups organize and become bigger they become more and more powerful on a lot of these topics i mean this is the this is the area era when we're talking about susan b anthony starting to fight for women's suffrage she was famously arrested in in 1872 for managing the vote she got past a uh, a polling officer and managed to vote in the election and then she was arrested for it uh, the case went all the way to the Supreme Court because the 14th Amendment actually, or she argued that the 14th Amendment gave her the right to vote because what that one does is prevent the state from from uh, removing the right to vote from any legal citizen or, or uh, legally enfranchised citizen, I should say, with an eye towards protecting newly emancipated uh, Black Americans. But the Supreme Court found uh, against her in this case. And she was given a fine of $100, which is a lot of money at that point, yeah, in time, to be yeah, fair, yeah. Uh, which she refused to pay a dime of. And yeah. uh, she died never paying that fine. So good for her. Good for her. And I mean, you know, that that's only a year before the, the foundation of the WCTU. There's various organizations fighting for uh, the right to vote, fighting for other niche causes. And they, they kind of... They they gain a lot of steam in the in the late 19th century. Now there's a lot of backlash. Don't get me wrong. There's there's a lot of backlash, um, which there's going to be uh, for for any level of social change, let alone uh, change on on that order of magnitude, right? But the campaigns for for these women's rights, for these workers' rights, for uh, these health rights were, were all very strong and taken very seriously. And it got to a point where they actually got some some traction in 1881, Kansas enacted state level prohibition to kind of see if it would, it would help things because the United States at that point in time drank a lot of alcohol. And that's something that we've been kind of dancing around a little bit, but they drank a lot. Colin, like a, like a lot. (laughs) Average, average American consumption in 1830 was 1.7 bottles of hard liquor per week.
1: Wow. Adult
0: American. That's extreme. That's a lot of booze. That is a lot
1: of booze. What are they doing? <laughs> I mean, what's that actually work out to? I- I'm trying to think of how much you'd have to drink just per day. And that's average. That's average. Well, I mean, and to be, to be
0: fair, the, the, um, the national averages tend to sound a little bit higher uh, than you would imagine just because there are, a lot of, there, there are a lot of outliers on something like this. Still, though. Currently, current American average is about a third of that. Right. So, you know, you're still talking about like 0. 0.6 bottles a week. I, I mean, it sounds high to me, but again, there's a lot of outliers bringing that number up.
1: That does still sound high, but it's a lot lower than uh, 1.7. Oh, yeah. No, no,
0: no. The Founding Fathers,
1: man, <laughs> they knew how to party.
0: George Washington has a recipe for hot toddies. Which is like a warm, like winter rum drink, yeah, with like melted butter in it, which just sounds amazing. But like in his like his official diaries, there's like his recipes written in there because <laughs> he loved <laughs> that stuff. Everybody drank a lot all the time,
1: so I guess if everybody drank a lot all the time, mm-hmm. then the companies making the alcoholic products, you know, would have a decent amount of money. And a decent amount of say in what's going on, would it's they not?
0: funny you should mention that because, yeah, that was actually one of the major concerns about this. The brewing industry in the United States figured out vertical integration like a century before everybody else. <laughs> because what they would do was they would open brewery-associated saloons. They would only sell their own brands in those saloons, but wouldn't necessarily advertise their affiliation. Which meant that if you liked their product, you could only buy it from their saloon, which means that they were running it with, you know, you you don't have the markup of of reselling to somebody else's saloon. They were making a lot of money. Right. They would also offer free lunches at these saloons to encourage people to come in and drink. Very salty lunches, I should add. Very intentionally salty lunches. Make you
1: thirsty. Yeah,
0: Yeah. exactly. And yeah, there there was a big worry that that was way too much power. I mean, this is an era of trust-busting, right? Like, this is where people are looking at U.S. Steel and going like, nah, they got too much power here. The idea that the saloons would have that much power, but also over something so hedonistic and something so pervasive was really worrisome for people. I mean, in most cases, the the local distiller would be one of the most wealthy and important citizens in a in a given area.
1: But wouldn't that give them... Even more than today, a lot of political power to fight something like this, or was it just the general population just so against them because of you know the other progressive things going on
0: uh, more the more the latter than the former. It's more that there was this this massive movement of antitrust sentiment in the United States, which comes around every once in a while that's that's a that's a cycle it just happens we've We've seen it fairly recently actually yeah. um <laughs> the the whole banking uh, scandals of the last decade or so have uh, you know certainly not been on the same level as what we're talking about here, but you hear a lot of the same sort of arguments for why large corporations are a bad thing for Americans. Right. It, it gives you at least a, an idea of what these people were feeling. Now, on the other hand, their fears about just how much uh, of an influence these saloon owners had were likely kind of whipped up a little bit by the people who were anti-alcohol this is a
1: bit of a boogeyman that would make sense yeah
0: well i mean there's a lot of bad science flying around this is the progressive era right <laughs> there's um, a lot of things that are that are claimed to be very rational that are actually rooted in very irrational uh
1: premises so did that result in some hilarious propaganda
0: oh yeah oh absolutely it's all over the place you you also get i i mean The thing that I kind of love about this, this era is this sort of moral righteousness that some of these temperance activists would develop after a while. I was talking about Kansas earlier, there was famously this woman named Carrie Nation, that after the saloons were outlawed, um, she she lost her husband to alcoholism. And after alcohol was outlawed in, in Kansas, and of course, people continued buying and consuming and selling alcohol, because that's what people do. Um, she would go around saloon to saloon with a hatchet, uh, breaking open casks and smashing bottles, and basically being like, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> uh, her middle name was Amelia, so she started going by Carrie A Nation, which is it's disgustingly clever, I it's, guess. It's a little bit too on the nose. But like this is the 1880s, right? <laughs> like It's, it's kind of like, no, I get it. I make a pretty good I don't know, political cartoon or whatever. Yeah. I can imagine like different aspects of it labeled by the cartoonists so you know exactly <laughs> what's going on. Yeah. The hatches labeled progressivism. <laughs> but yeah, I mean you, you get you get all of these um uh, religious leaders involved that are calling it this this bane of, of humanity that um are tying alcohol consumption to um a cause of poverty, for example, by pointing to the fact that Less wealthy people tend to drink more alcohol, which isn't strictly true at this point in time, but probably very easy to sell. But what you would see is is more public consumption, right? So there's this conspicuous consumption of alcohol, whereas somebody who's more wealthy is likely drinking at home, not out at a saloon, which is very much a a working class uh, environment. Right. You don't have someone who's very wealthy getting in a bar brawl, but only because he's not drinking with other people. Right. Not because he's
1: necessarily drinking less. Maybe the bar brawl is occurring with his friend and his personal estate.
0: And it's never reported to the police because we don't need to involve them in such matters. <laughs> yeah. It's pointed to as a cause of domestic abuse, which I'll give them that one. Now, mind you, whether or not it's a, it's a cause in and of itself is, is uh, an argument to be had. But whether or not it makes uh, it more likely or worse, um, sure. Fair. Yeah, I, I, I can buy that one. Yeah. You get crime attributed to it. Again, anything where you're lowering inhibition, I, I, yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, what you're seeing with all of this is really targeting the lower class, right? In in a lot of ways, that's what we're looking at here. Right. Oh, the 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 idea that there's this loss of labor revenue. There's this this thing called Blue Monday that's hypo, uh, that's hypothesized by uh, a Harvard economist Irving Fisher, suggesting that there's as much as six billion dollars lost annually due to poor production by hungover laborers on Mondays because they're, they've, they they got so drunk over the weekend that they can't function at their proper level. Right. And so they show up to work and they're there, but they don't do as good a job. And if they were performing at peak sober prof- uh, efficiency, they'd be making $6 billion more annually across the country. And
1: is this $6 billion then? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: What you don't you don't buy it? No. Does it feel a little blown out of
0: proportion? It just,
1: here? Yeah, it might it might be a little bit uh, a little bit much. Maybe. <laughs> so yeah, there's this weird
0: targeting of of you know really racist and classist undertones going on here, right? There's this idea that for some reason minorities and immigrants are more susceptible to the dangers of alcoholism. And that what we're talking about when we're putting in societal controls, which is what the temperance movement is, is aiming for, it's not framed as you know a, a matter of principle where everyone agrees that no one should be drinking, everyone agrees that things would be better if no one was drinking. It's framed as we need to protect people who are more vulnerable to the evils and the ravages of alcohol. Right. We're we're saving them from themselves. Yes. Yeah. Because it's not seen as a personal failing. And that's that's the that's the the ugly underside of progressivism is the the classist side where it's saying that certain types of people are less good and that they can't help that fact.
1: No, they can't control themselves, so we have to we have to do it for them
0: exactly this mm. is uh, you know another another episode to look to at this point would be the uh uh criminology episode i did with dan where we talked about this idea of the criminal element of the criminaloid that there is a certain biological type of person more likely to commit crimes which no no that's it's not uh, distasteful <laughs> barely cracks uh, scratches the yeah. surface on that yeah it's 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 horrendous come on people what are you doing <laughs> This is the same idea that there are a certain type of people, a certain quality of people that are so susceptible to the dangers of alcohol that it would be better for all of us as a society to go out to go without alcohol, despite the wink and nod understanding that the the their betters it's almost can like better it's the,
1: handle their alcohol. It's the wink and nod that lets them get away with saying it, right? It's it's oh no, it, it's for all of us, really.
0: But no, that's the thing. This is overtly stated in some of this this rhetoric. Uh, it's it's not even it's not even hidden behind dog whistles. Yeah. It's actually stated as a pro argument for temperance. We're helping these people. Things will be better for all of us because we're lifting up the lower classes. Right. It's 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 very offensive. It leaves a very bad taste in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah and this is again where where the temper or where the where the uh, progressive movement like as a whole kind of runs into some really big problems is that when you when you base your so-called rational or scientific methods on such flawed and and distasteful premises none of this is rational none of this is scientific and none of this really works that well but that's the that's the place that this is coming from and it's it's really important to to note that. And, and it's, you know, to be honest, that's been true of a lot of different morality laws throughout history is that it's about, it's not, they're not for everyone. And you see that on the flip side, when you look at, when you look at prosecution down the line, but we'll get to that later. There's also, and, and back to the, the political corruption side, not only is it an issue of the saloon owners having too much power in people's estimation, It's also this idea that people under the influence of alcohol, especially these more susceptible classes, (laughs) when they're under the influence of alcohol, they'll be more suggestible when it comes to basically political bribery. They're worried that these saloon owners are going to be bribing people for their vote with alcohol. With the booze. Yeah. Now, mind you, in, in earlier elections, this had actually happened openly in the United States. But they had been putting controls in to, to get rid of that, obviously. You know, things like secret ballots are really important for controlling against bribery. But yeah, that's that's the worry here. And so all of this comes back around to these saloons being seen as just not a good place for people to be. Nothing good happens there. Uh, I should mention that, that women are completely uh, excluded from participating in drinking culture at all at this point in time. Saloons are for men and women would not be allowed inside again for their protection because it's a rowdy place where where men do manly things like fight each other but also because women in general are are seen as this this fragile class of being that that can't handle such things Mm. and again just more distasteful progressive theories about people in here right um nothing nothing new there the wctu was supplanted by the early 20th century by a more focused anti-saloon league which was specifically just about alcohol. The WCTU continued to exist, but it focused a lot more on uh, things like suffrage and, and other women's rights. The Anti-Saloon League came up and it came out swinging. It's led by this guy named Wayne Wheeler. And Wheeler was, he, he basically took all these parts of the moral righteousness of the Great Awakening with this social engineering, you know, protecting the, the weakened classes of progressivism, and combine them into this really strong platform to make it a wedge issue in a lot of elections. Uh, a wedge issue being basically doesn't matter what else our our party stands for, we're going to get rid of booze. And is all of that other stuff that my opponent opponent is saying really more important than ridding our society of this evil? And this is a, a thing that you see in in every election. There's always wedge issues. Right. And it's a it's a tactic in a lot of cases to basically discount everything that your opponent is saying and force them to take a stance on a single very emotionally important
1: Yeah, let's not issue. look
0: at all the policies. Clearly, this one is the most important one. I don't have a budget, but I will get rid of saloons. Right. I mean, that's, that's a little unfair, but that, that's really what it comes down to, is making, making it into a one-issue election. And he succeeded in getting several congressmen uh, elected using his tactics on temperance-based platforms. It got it got very, very popular. Now, of course, it wasn't everywhere yet. But usually when things come to a loggerhead like this, what's really needed to shake things up is some sort of, you know, big social, societal issue to come along. And, oh, what's that there? The, the First World War is here. And it's going to have some major effects on American life. Like, major effects. Number one, all the men left to fight. Not all, but a good number of them. Quite a few. Which means that you have to get women into a lot of home front jobs. Now the first world war is in a lot of cases considered to be the first uh, total war, which means that the entire society is mobilized towards war before the 20th century. If, uh, if a country goes to war, you know, the war is one thing and just regular life for everybody else is another thing here. But now all of a sudden you've got these, you know, factories that are converting into ammunition uh, manufacturers and, and things like that, where everything is going into the war effort. And if you've got all the men fighting, you need somebody to run the factories. And who's left, right? Which gives them a lot more political capital. And women start demanding things like, okay, well, you know, if you expect us to work in roles that you've told us that we can't handle anymore and do what you would consider a man's job, then I expect the benefits that come with doing those jobs that you're saying that men deserve because they do those jobs for us. Well, now we're doing them. Let us vote. Yeah. That's really hard to argue against, isn't it? (laughs) It's, Solid argument. There's a lot of kind of temporary provisions that are kind of played around with at this point in time. It's like, well, maybe we'll let women vote just for the rest of the war, <laughs> and it's but it's too much of a runaway train, right? Yeah, and, and and all of a sudden, women are there on the political landscape as a very powerful force. The other thing is that the U.S. only enters the war uh, in April 1917. I don't know how much you know about the First World War and America's involvement in it, but
1: hang on, hang on. Did it start in 1914?
0: Correct. Yes. Good work. <laughs> um, World War I is endlessly fascinating to me. Today is not the day to talk about it. However, the important thing to note here is that the, the United States stayed neutral, as is their foreign policy for nearly 100 years at this point, in the whole conflict up until two key events happened. Number one is the sinking of a, a passenger ship called Lusitania by a German U-boat. Uh, The other, and a lot of people argue is more, uh, a larger factor in the entrance, is something called the Zimmerman telegram. Uh, This is the telegram that was sent from Germany to Mexico, telling them that Mexico would have Germany's support if they would attack the United States to keep them out of the war in Europe. And in return, they would help Mexico. Secure some of the southern states, uh, the southwestern states that used to be part of Mexico. You know, your Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, especially. The U.S. got their hands on that. They printed it in full in all their newspapers,
1: Ooh. read it out on the radio, etc. Yeah,
0: people were people were a little cheesed. Yeah, I, I could see them being a little upset with that. Off to war with Germany. Thing is, Europe at this point, and it's really hard to get across to people, has been so ravaged by the first world war that the entirety of europe is je- basically just one giant churned up mud field just a bunch of rubble it's 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 indescribably terrible and this is going to have an effect on the populations of all of these countries for an entire generation it's going to have a major effect on the economies of all of these countries for decades In fact, some would argue that they've never truly recovered, especially when you heap World War II on it. I was going to say, spoiler
1: alert, it may have also led to another rather large war.
0: Meanwhile, the United States gets the luxury, quote unquote, of not entering the war until three quarters of the way through and never having to fight on U.S. soil, which means they get to come in with fresh armies, do really well in the war basically save the day for all of the Allied forces, meaning that they kind of owe the U.S. something, walk away with a still fully functioning economy that's been kicked into high gear by wartime production. Their economy? Through the roof. Ever hear the Roaring Twenties? Didn't happen by accident. Uh, what happened is there was a big hole in the market created by the complete obliteration of production in Europe by World War I, as well as a reentrance onto the world stage by the United States because of world war one and an economy that was geared towards maximum production with an injection of people into the workforce by the total war economy, forcing women into the workplace. It's an economic miracle. Yeah. Yeah. Comes at a terrible price, but the United States is laughing.
1: Yeah. They got to sit back, Mm -hmm. come in late and reap all the benefits. Pretty much. And I mean, that's a really cynical way of looking at it. It's not
0: as though that was intentional. That's just how this plays out. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, here in Canada, we went through a similar uh, upturn. Uh, we were a little bit harder hit just based on how long we were in the war. But again, we had a much smaller population. And there, there's there's a lot of things that Canada does in a similar fashion to America, just in a smaller and milder way. That's it's how we do. It's kind of Canada in a nutshell <laughs> in a lot of cases. <laughs> Oh, I love Canada. It's the best. (laughs) There's a couple other social things that come out of the war, though. Namely, a heavy anti-German sentiment, because, you know, they're at war with them. Which means that things like the major beer brewers at the time, for example, Anheuser-Busch. Right. People didn't feel that patriotic about buying their beer. All of these Bavarian lagers that are going around, not not so popular anymore. Right. It also means that when you're trying to feed an army and trying to feed a workforce, you want to be as efficient about your production as possible. And the interesting thing about alcohol from like a world history, you know, top down bird's eye uh, perspective is that alcohol is made from all of the things that we also eat and that our livestock eats. In fact, there are those that theorize that the entire cause of the agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago was that we realized that the things that we could turn into alcohol could be grown in one place that we could stay and get more of. This isn't proven but it's an interesting theory when you look at some of the things that were initially cultivated because they are all things that are very easily turned into alcoholic beverages. Wheat, wheat. rye, Mm -hmm. barley. Exactly. Now again, not, not proven but it's a very interesting concept, isn't it? Yeah. Instead of happening across some berries that have been laying on the ground for too long and have some alcohol in there, we'll just settle down right beside the alcohol. <laughs> just wait for a while, it'll be great. <laughs> but we you know, it, it it's worth noting that we as as human beings have a very long relationship with intoxicants. It's kind of a part of the human experience. Yeah. Yeah. That, that that's fair. But From a practical standpoint, the government would rather all of that wheat and rye and barley be made into things like bread or fed to livestock than made into alcohol, which means that the war plus the temperance movement gave them some excuse to put a basically a temporary ban on, on alcohol just in favor of wartime production. And I mean, it wasn't necessarily that weird just because it was something that was happening to a number of, of industries throughout uh, the First World War, just to make sure that the economy ran So this properly. was
1: during World War I, mm-hmm. the, the temporary ban? Yeah. And I guess if uh, a large percentage of the men were away, mm-hmm. were saloons for women yet? No, not really. So they would have been pretty quiet anyway.
0: Relatively speaking, yeah. Um I mean, there were plenty of men that stayed behind. It's not as though the the uh alcohol industry was uh was hurting in any way shape or form, but you know rationing for wartime is is it's it's pretty common and given the the general temperance climate it was fairly easy to uh to sell to people right now i should note note that um just before the war in nineteen thirteen the temperance movement caught a pretty good victory. In the form of the 16th Amendment, which put in place income tax. But Adam, why is that important? Uh, because most of that money had been coming from alcohol sales taxation. And they put that income tax in there to replace alcohol sa- sales tax.
1: Really? mm mm-hmm. Income tax was born... Out of a temporary alcohol ban?
0: It happened before the ban, but it was it was oh, in right. hopes of being able to ban it without in, financial... In, in
1: preparation, kind of like, here's what we need to do so that we don't need that tax money? Correct.
0: Huh. And it was considered the greatest victory of the temperance movement before Prohibition itself, because it was the last real major roadblock from a policy standpoint. But then the war got going, this temporary ban was relatively well accepted, and... Uh, these special interest groups kept pushing. And finally, in uh, August 1917, the 18th Amendment, um, that prohibiting the sale of alcohol, was put before the House, ratified by January 1919, so a little bit after the war, actually. It takes a long time to get these things through sometimes. It was ratified by enough states to put it into place. And on January 16th, 1920, at midnight, officially the... Manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importation thereof into or the exportation thereof from the United States and all territory subject to jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes was hereby prohibited.
1: Just like that. And now alcohol is illegal. Was it banned in Kansas the whole time leading up to this? Yep. Yep. So they had it going for a lot longer than everybody else.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were there were regional places that it was kind of popping up mm-hmm. here and there. Those those temperance uh, candidates that um, Wheeler was putting forward was was making inroads in in those specific areas. But this is constitutionally mandated. This is on a federal level. This is everywhere in the United States. Yeah, it's now in the Constitution. Big deal. Big deal. Big change. <sighs> Let's take a deep breath. Get used to this big change and. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back here on HI101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. And uh, we freshened some stuff up over the break. What do you got in front of you? I,
1: I honestly don't know, mm-hmm. but it looks fantastic. The, the presentation is spot on. This is a
0: very common cocktail, actually, that originated during the Prohibition era. This is a whiskey sour. Oh, fantastic. Uh, What do we got here? We got some uh, lemon juice, some bourbon, specifically bourbon, because as you may or may not know, bourbon is uh, an American whiskey only. It has to be from the United States. It has to be made uh, at least 51% corn mash. There's a couple other details there. Um, But it's specifically that it's corn, which was the most prevalent for making whiskey at this point in time especially in the Appalachian region. And it got, it got made a lot because it was easy to make or relatively easy for a distilled beverage that you're making at home on your own. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> then the lemon juice is to cut some of the harshness of the terrible bad bourbon that, makes, that someone's making in their barn. Right. Uh, there's a little bit of sugar in there also to cut, also also to cut, the, uh, also to cut the tape. Yeah. You'll, you'll find that Prohibition beverages very much about disguising the taste of alcohol right because the Um, actual
1: booze awful yeah
0: yeah pre-prohibition a lot of the cocktails that you would get would really be kind of celebrating the the alcohol itself that's that's where you get like your you know your gin martinis and things like that where it's you know it's a it's a cocktail but the cocktail is just like mixing like four different kinds of alcohol together and saying go to town yeah here's here's a Here's five ounces of alcohol. Uh, enjoy your third and fourth. Yeah, we've got we've got a maraschino cherry in there. Should be good. We'll see how it goes. And mm. then yeah, the lemon wedge because can't have whiskey sour without a lemon wedge. So, cheers. That is sour. That is sour,
1: but it's delicious. It's
0: very good. Mm. I don't taste much much bourbon in there.
1: That's what is scary about a drink like this. Because you know it's there, you put it there.
0: I did. You saw me pour it. It is absolutely in there. I mean, I, I don't think I could drink this all night. It's
1: very sour. But you know, this is what you were trying to say. The booze, not good. Didn't taste that great. Nope. Like, I'm pretty sure this bourbon's probably
0: oh yeah quite nice. Mm-hmm. I'll I'll sh- I'll show you which brand it is after. Listen, they're not paying me here. <laughs>
1: This show is sponsored by man if only
0: good times no I'll, I'll show you which one it is after I'm, I'm a big fan, and I think you'd like it quite a bit as well but uh anyways yeah let's uh let's keep this rolling. i am by the way for for my listeners, we are mixing very very small versions of this yes, <laughs> this show is not gonna get sloppy by the end, I promise you, I can't keep this going while I'm drinking that much anyways. It's something that we're going to see a lot in terms of what people are drinking. It's not good stuff. We're not looking for quality here. Right. Because it's just, people are getting by, I guess would be the, the way to, to categorize it. It's worth noting, actually, though, that the, uh, the 18th Amendment doesn't actually prevent consumption. I did read through the things that it prevents. And mostly what it is, is production, sale, and import. Of alcoholic beverages or transport through. But actually drinking alcohol isn't illegal.
1: So the idea, I guess, is if you manage to get your hands on it, great, mm -hmm, drink it, that's fine. But that shouldn't be possible because nobody's making it, nobody's moving it, and nobody's selling it.
0: Hypothetically, at least. And the way that they're going to enforce the 18th Amendment is through something called the National Prohibition Act. It's also known as the Volstead Act. After Andrew Volstead, he's the chairman of the committee that came up with this piece of legislation. You'll find in in U.S. politics, especially, anytime there's a committee, uh, if there's an act or a report or whatever that comes out of it, it'll be named after the chairman. That's that's really common. Now, but it it, it is worth noting that uh, Wheeler actually helped this committee draft the legislation. So he was right involved with all of this stuff. He'd been working for ages to get it going, and he was right there on the front lines doing what he believed in. The reason this act is really necessary is because drinking isn't the only thing we do with alcohol. There's a lot of other applications. Not necessarily applications that you consider right away, but you've got an entire industry of people using alcohol for industrial processes going, whoa, 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 whoa. what are you doing? I need that. That doesn't include me, does it? Exactly. It's in fuel? Religious ritual? Now, Uh, there were certain denominations that were arguing that because alcohol is uh, morally objectionable and possibly even evil, that the actual uh, communion rite couldn't possibly contain it and lobbied for using non-alcoholic wine for the communion ritual. Right. To some extent, even going... For uh, like a grape juice, rather than even like a dealcoholized wine, um, in fact, this is where Welch's grape juice comes from. Their original uh, mandate was creating non-alcoholic communion wine. <laughs> really, really. Yeah, Welch's grape juice.
1: That is very interesting
0: yeah you get a lot of brands actually uh, of of food stuff coming out of the states that if they're old enough, they probably have a really weird moral uh groundwork right. uh like cornflakes oh, you don't know about dr Kellogg was uh he 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 ran a sanitarium which was all about clean, healthy living, getting lots of fresh air and exercise, and uh eating many bland foods for your health cornflakes. yeah. Yeah. Cornflakes is what he came up with. Wow. Cornflakes, the most boring breakfast. That's what he was shooting for. He was was the actual goal. He was literally aiming for it.
1: (laughs) And and it's it's still...
0: Like, think about it. He made breakfasts and he was like, this is too good. (laughs) Let's just dial it back several notches. Oh, perfect. Found Mm. it. Then there's also medical necessity. Now, remember, we've had the FDA for nearly 20 years now, but... There is still this idea that alcohol can be medically uh, useful, not just in terms of like rubbing alcohol for sterilizing things, although that is a valid use, but also as something that your doctor could prescribe to you for various ailments.
1: Even with the FDA, that was still a thing?
0: Well, sure, because there would be medical doctors lobbying for the efficacy of it and indeed submitting evidence for the efficacy of it Mm. as a treatment. It also had this problem that the... 18th amendment didn't actually properly define what an alcohol was or, or what liquor was. And so this act would, uh, would define it as any beverage containing more than 0.5% ABV, which is very low, very low. Leave your grape juice on the counter overnight. It might, might tip just over. (laughs) Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, uh, that limit would be struck down for a lot of uses um, just because it's, there was some odd legal wording in the way the Volstead Act was was formed that kept it from being really an enforceable limit, and so it was eventually struck for everything but beer. Beer in particular was targeted by the Volstead Act. Remember, we're coming on the heels of World War One, a lot of anti-German sentiment, both you know, kind of internationally, like with the the German beer companies coming into the United States, but also for German immigrants. This is this is a time period where you know, being Irish was going to get you some racial slurs in America, right? Like this is, yeah, we're, we're, we're right in the heart of it there. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, the beer industry actually got hit very, very hard by prohibition, Uh, potentially harder than any other alcohol industry, other than maybe some of the old rum distilleries on the East coast, which were some of the oldest alcohol production companies in the United States. But they were already starting to lose market share to the Caribbean anyways. Mm. The United States has an interesting uh, relationship with sugar. Uh, and <laughs> it was, that industry was already losing traction before Prohibition. This was just kind of the nail in the coffin. They just never really came back after, after Prohibition in the same way. Right. But this, lo- this, this loophole in, in the, uh, the percentage of alcohol actually allowed technically legal home winemaking in that you were allowed a certain amount of uh, fruit juice for non-alcoholic com- consumption, but the loophole allowed you to make it into wine yourself without technically breaking any laws. Isn't that the production
1: of alcohol?
0: As long as you don't take it off of your property, you're okay oh. because transporting it off your property is a is a problem. If you're caught intentionally producing it, that's a problem but that's kind of hard to prove with, with wine consumption or with wine production. I mean, you're not going to get a good wine, but wine kind of just happens. Right. And it's hard to prosecute somebody for letting the grape juice spoil.
1: <laughs> that's Yeah, that's fair. And I
0: mean, the thing is, even though this has been passed, public sentiment isn't really for prohibition. In fact, it's seen as kind of a needless law it, it it just seems pointless to most people. Like, why, why are you bothering with this? Why are you putting the resources towards making this so difficult? Uh, nobody cares. Everyone does it. You know, this is dumb, basically. Of the first thousand or so uh, cases brought under the Volstead Act in New York uh, that, that were brought to a jury trial, only six were actually prosecuted and only one saw jail time. <laughs> a jury of your peers is not going to convict you for making some wine on your premises. Right. Now, the other thing that the Volstead Act allowed was that you were allowed up to 200 gallons per year of fruit juice for personal non-alcoholic consumption that, you know, oops, might might turn into wine a little bit. Um, which is, up to, it's like about a thousand bottles of wine a year.
1: That's quite a bit.
0: That's a lot of wine. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that kind of ends up being a loophole here is that If you are a fruit producer, you're not allowed to sell fruit for the express purpose of making alcohol. If you're selling apples, you can't be selling cider apples. But if somebody does it and you don't know about it, that's not really your fault. Right. At the time, there was this kind of burgeoning wine uh, industry in California. It was just starting out. And they almost immediately switched over to these kind of poor quality grapes that had really thick skin. So they were good for transport and relatively high sugar content. So they were pretty easy to ferment. Uh, and they made a lot of those. Uh, in fact, a lot of people credit that with setting the American wine industry back by decades because more desirable, but less hardy varietals were passed over for things that you could actually sell to people. Right. And someone came up with this ingenious idea for a product known as a grape brick. See, everyone wanted grape juice. It was all their age. Uh, And they realized that because grapes are so hard to transport, they were getting a lot of losses in in sellable product. So they figured out how to basically take grapes, make a concentrate of grape juice, powder it, and sell it in a brick form so that you could reconstitute it at home to make your own grape juice. Hmm. Now, this did present a legal problem because that would be a very easy thing to make wine out of. So what they decided to do just so that there was no confusion whatsoever about the legality of this process, they put a disclaimer on their grape bricks. And it specifically says after dissolving the brick in a gallon of water, do not place the liquid in a jug away in the cupboard for 20 days because then it might turn into wine. Don't do it. That's illegal. <laughs> they put instructions on Don't, the package. They put instru- Colin, you're not listening. They put instructions <laughs> on how not on what not to do. They're very clear about it.
1: <laughs> That's amazing.
0: Don't do it. It's wrong.
1: <laughs> Don't do this exact thing mm-hmm. that will produce the thing that you're not supposed to make.
0: And so, I mean, you have people who actually know what fermentation is, how it works, that are, you know, doing a better job of this, but Yeah, there's enough wild yeast in the air that it'll turn it into wine. It won't be good wine. It'll be very bad wine, probably. But it'll be wine. It'll get you soused. (laughs) (laughs) It'll It'll do the work. Yeah. It'll do its job. And so there was just this massive boom in home brewing, if you can call it that. But people were still drinking like a couple bottles of wine a week on average. Under prohibition. Fairly commonly.
1: So I don't want to uh, jump back too far, but I just wanted to to confirm: these companies who were using alcohol for um, non-consumption purposes, yeah, did they get exceptions put in somewhere, or did they actually have to come up with other solutions?
0: There is another solution. Well, it, it, it's it's kind of both. They got an exception with a, a concession, which is something known as denatured alcohol. the The alcohol that we are safely able to drink is ethyl alcohol. There's another form of alcohol called methyl alcohol, which uh, behaves in more or less the same way in most cases, but tastes terrible. Like, really, really bad. And they mandated that anything being used for industrial purposes, for any non-consumption purposes, needed to be denatured to discourage people from consuming
1: it. Is that the kind of booze that, and I don't even know if this is actually a thing, but quote unquote, makes you go blind? It is.
0: Methyl alcohol makes you go blind. So that's a real thing? That That is an actual real thing. Drinking standard controlled, properly made ethyl alcohol will not make you go blind. What makes you go blind is the corruption of the, the methyl alcohol in there that, you know what, it gets you messed up real fast. Like It's very quick. It's a little bit different, apparently, from what I've heard tastes bad, but also can taste kind of sweet and people kind of get a taste for it a little bit, but it has significant neurological impacts. Like it's got the potential for very uh, long lasting damage, Uh, you know, really bad degenerative, like shakes and things like that. Uh, The potential to go blind, a lot of, a lot of physiological problems. And really what ends up happening there is, that denatured alcohol is is there for people's protection. But what ends up happening is that the less desirable sections of society will steal a bunch of industrial alcohol, bottle it as though it's whiskey, sell it to people as though it's safe, and have them suffer really serious side effects or, in a lot of cases, outright die because it's poisonous in fairly, in fairly small amounts. They figure as many as 10,000 people died over the course of prohibition from drinking denatured alcohol, uh, whether it be intentionally or, or not, or through deception. Uh, in fact, once it, once it was over, there was a call for some government responsibility for the, those they had, quote-unquote, killed, with or, or by adding methyl alcohol to, uh, to industrial alcohol, which isn't necessarily fair. I mean, the argument there is, well, they knew people would drink it, it anyway, so it was irresponsible to denature in the first place
1: no no uh people still didn't they didn't have to drink it i I mean slash so i mean
0: the substance that they're putting in there isn't to kill people to punish them for drinking it it's supposed to be to dissuade people from drinking it in the first place because it's it's noticeable right you know how rubbing alcohol doesn't smell good there's methyl alcohol in there right just you know, don't drink it. It's bad. Um, and that's why you get problems to this day where you hear people, you know, doing things like uh, drinking a mouthwash. It's got methyl alcohol in there. It's going to be real bad for you. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's important to to recognize that there's a, there's a difference there. It's the people who took it and tried to sell it. They're the real criminals here, absolutely. If you're... this This is a little unfair, maybe, but if you knowingly consume denatured alcohol it's hard to put that blame on someone else I suppose there is the argument for the you know for the illness model of alcoholism there Um, but even then really I think there were so many other ways of getting your hands on alcohol that I I have a hard time putting the blame on uh, on government legislation trying to dissuade people from drinking a substance that is illegal in the first place yeah but that's yeah, that's a long debate that's not really necessary for this topic. Anyways. Oh, I forgot to mention about grapes. The grape industry boomed so hard out of these grape uh, grape bricks that the average price of grapes jumped from about nine fifty a ton to by the end of Prohibition about three hundred and seventy five dollars a ton. Whoa. There was no inflation in this period. So you can't even blame that. That's insane grapes everybody wants to be in that business (laughs) every once in a while one of these places would get raided and basically it's like look you put this warning on here we know what you're doing this isn't legal and they go okay they'd shut it down and they'd open under another name and yeah just kept going okay so how else could you get booze the easiest way for you know on a number of levels was be rich enough that you could buy the entire stock of some brewery when you knew that Prohibition was coming up. A lot of people did that. A lot of very wealthy people did that. They had vast reserves of alcohol. Because if you purchase it before prohibition, you're fine. Yeah. If you don't take it off of your property, you're not transporting it. You're fine. And the consumption isn't illegal. Correct. Drink it at home. You're fine. <laughs> now, again, this is a point where you know prohibition really unfairly targets people based on their socioeconomic status because... One rather poorly off person with a bottle of moonshine is likely to get tossed in jail. Whereas, you know, a wealthier person with a, with a basement, just chock full of barrels of whiskey probably isn't going to be touched. And not just because of what they have, but of who they are. Yeah. And again, this is a theme that we'll see across the board with morality laws. Uh, You and I were talking off air, how there are certain comparisons to be made to the current conversation in Canada and the United States about the legalization of marijuana, where when you look at who's actually affected by its illegality, it tends to be minorities or people of lower socioeconomic status. It's really sporadically uh, enforced in general, like even even law enforcement doesn't seem that interested in necessarily enforcing it unless there's other illegal behavior going on especially if you're not one of these minorities that tends to be unfairly targeted public sentiment seems to be kind of well, who cares who's doing this other than some fairly vocal segments of the population who shouldn't be discounted but are not the majority anymore and at the end of the day is kind of about imposing your own morals on the entirety of society often framed as being for the good of the more vulnerable members of that society. Right. So, you know, we don't need to get too political about that, but it's worth considering when you consider what is going through the minds of the people enforcing these laws, the people who are still consuming alcohol under these laws. uh, When we get closer to the end and we're looking at repealing these laws, this isn't, this doesn't need to be a very foreign concept just because alcohol is so prevalent in our society today. And so, well accepted. We we have an, uh, an analog that we can point to that's very relevant right now, actually. Absolutely, yeah. How else can you get alcohol? Yeah, so if you've got your own reserves, that's that's great. You're probably set for a good chunk of the 13 years of Prohibition. We talked about Great Bricks. You've got some rather porous borders going on. I mean, individuals were smuggling their own alcohol out of Canada and out of Mexico uh, even occasionally out of the
1: Bahamas via boat. Yeah, I think I knew this, but but Canada didn't have any of this going on at the time. Yes and no. There was some
0: prohibition in Canada for a short period of time. Well, um,
1: did it overlap with the U.S.?
0: Just barely. Right. And actually, during uh, during Canadian prohibition, sales of American alcohol into Canada was a massive problem for the Canadian border, basically different provinces had it at different amounts of time. Federal prohibition ran from 1917 to 1920, again, out of sort of wartime reasons with the difference being that they actually ended it after the war ended. And then the provinces kind of ended their own prohibitions, uh, as they saw fit. Um, I mean, Quebec only had prohibition for like three years or something like that. They got back out of it as quickly as possible. Right. Um, whereas Manitoba was a little bit longer, um, PEI didn't repeal it until 1930, so they were quite a while. And there are various little pockets of of uh, you know dry counties or dry towns that are still in existence, actually in Canada, uh, although not nearly as much as you'll see in the United States. All this is to say that the majority, or at least on a federal level, Canada's prohibition ended the same year that it went into effect in the United States. Right. Oh, and under Canadian prohibition, they never actually outlawed the production of alcohol for sale outside of the country so alcohol produced for export was fine which is where you actually see the prevalence of canadian club whiskey coming up
1: pretty okay. big that's it's- a little bit weird actually yeah like we're not okay with drinking this but if y'all want to do that everybody else everywhere else that's cool we're, we're fine with that Well, we'll take your money
0: Personally, I see that as very consistent with the general Canadian <laughs> experience. <laughs> we're gonna do our thing here, but like if you if you wanna do whatever you wanna do, we're not gonna get too upset about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. But yeah, I, I mean the ability for I, I mean the Detroit Windsor crossing was especially notorious for for bootlegging. It was um very hard for border guards to keep an eye on it, and I mean that's the other that's the other thing about prohibition. They didn't put a lot of resources towards actually enforcing
1: all of this. Right. Mm-hmm. They just assume people would go along with it, or what?
0: Well, I mean, the, the regular police have other things to do. The number of uh, officers who were specifically charged with with enforcing prohibition were few and far between. I mean, I, I saw a number like between three states or something that had just over a hundred officers watching those three states. One well, one of them being Illinois, which is you know, Chicago is a pretty right. major city. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the the having every border guard check every car that's coming across kind of tough to do. They didn't have the money to put forward towards it. Then you have the Great Lakes where you have people smuggling alcohol via boat.
1: Uh, it was huge. It was massive. Yeah, that's that's um that's a lot of area to try to cover to prevent that.
0: Well, how how do you cover it? Yeah. How, like, how do you do it? And, I mean, in reality, the, the United States has never really needed much of a Coast Guard presence on the Great Lakes before because they're technically landlocked um, and the border is only with Canada, which um, the United States has never traditionally considered uh, nearly as dangerous or as exposed as their maritime borders, right? So lots of Coast Guards on the actual coast of the the oceans, uh, but not so much on the Great Lakes. I mean, they they added more, obviously, as they needed to, but again, not a lot of resources put towards it. Meanwhile, a lot of incentive for people to bring over their own alcohol.
1: Right.
0: They also tried to get on certain Caribbean nations' backs over selling alcohol, and Nassau Bahamas basically told them to take a hike. Uh, they were still a British colony at this point, and the Brits... They just wanted nothing to do with this whole prohibition thing. They thought it was weird. <laughs> um, Churchill once said that he considered prohibition an, aff- an affront to the whole history of mankind.
1: <laughs> sounds about right. Mind or, you, he
0: doesn't seem like the most
1: temperance-oriented no, person, but... Not really his jam.
0: Not his jam. Home stills were huge and dangerous. Really, really dangerous because the moonshine that people are making are... It's its just... It's not good. It's poorly controlled. The equipment that they're making it on is bad. Like there's a lot of like using car radiators to make stills, car radiators that would have antifreeze in them, yeah. which is methyl alcohol, right. by the way. Yeah. If improperly cleaned, would easily get into the moonshine. Often joints were soldered with lead rather than actually welded in any way. It was not quality stuff. Yeah. Distilling alcohol is relatively easy if you know how to do it. Distilling good alcohol is hard. And you're not exactly talking about like fine aged whiskey here. You're talking about it's done distilling time to drink or sell it. It's, it's not, it's pretty harsh stuff. It has alcoholic content. We're good. Basically we did it. We got there. Let's go. And then just like a lot of improvisation. We talked about the, the industrial alcohol, paint thinner, uh, rubbing alcohol kind of anything you can get your hands on do you know what sterno is no sterno is this product that's a little tin can and inside it it's got jellied denatured alcohol and the idea is that you can set up a little frame over top of it and you light it just like with a with a match and it controls and it produces a really clean burning flame that's just hot enough to like warm stuff up so it was billed as being uh good for say heating up baby bottles For example, you don't have to worry about a gas line into your home. You don't have to start the wood stove, which is a pain in the butt. You don't have to like, it's, it's just easy. It's there. You put a match to it. You warm, whatever you need to warm. Like chafing dishes was another uh, really common use for them. Uh, And then when you're done, you just, you know, put it out, put the lid back on. It's good for next time. Yeah. People would take the jelly out of sterno cans and, and strain it through cloth a couple times to get a liquid that they would drink. Again, denatured. So, I was going to say,
1: it's the bad stuff. It's the bad stuff.
0: People were desperate. It's, it's really hard to put a ban in place, like, overnight. Yeah. If that was being done today, it would probably be done in stages. Um, but I mean, still, you, you'd still have illegal consumption.
1: Whatever. You, you would, but it's, it's interesting in this specific case, because the enforcement seemed to be so lax, or at least not, well enough prepared.
0: Yeah. And what that means is that who gets hit the hardest are the ones who are doing it properly. It's all the breweries and distilleries who actually know what they're doing, who have the infrastructure in place to do it properly and the, the experience to know how to do it well. And it, it makes everyone into a home brewer. And finally you've got prescription alcohol, which we mentioned last time or in in the last section that a, a doctor could just write you a, I suppose it was the beginning of this section that a, a doctor could just write you a prescription for Whiskey, usually kind of like medical marijuana today you could get a whiskey prescription for just about anything. <laughs> Having trouble sleeping? Whiskey it is. Diabetes? Whiskey'll we'll sort that out. Feels it
1: feels outlandish. Depressed? Whiskey. Yeah. Oh god. <laughs> Cancer? Whiskey.
0: Uh, yeah. What it really ended up being is a racket for doctors, right? Mostly because they know that people want alcohol. And so you could go to the doctor, you could pay three dollars for the prescription and three to four dollars for the whiskey, and he'd keep you in drink for the next couple of weeks. And then you could do it all over again. But it was legal. It was expensive. But it was legal. Right. Uh and then finally we got the the speakeasy, which is kinda of synonymous yes, it, where's, with Where's the speakeasy? Kind of synonymous with uh with Prohibition movement, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Well I mean um like I said, I didn't know much about this, this topic going in, which is kind of the point, but speakeasies are, are hard not to, not to know. I mean, there's a lot of it in, uh, pop culture and there's, uh, a, a, a big movement towards having, um, having a bar that tries to replicate that look and feel.
0: Yeah. It's very hip right now.
1: It is. Very hip.
0: The 1920s, like the prosperity brought by that economic boom, really kind of started loosening societal norms. When things are good, people tend to get a little bit hedonistic. Another contributing factor that's been proposed is the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918. that killed a lot of specifically young people. The thing that was scary about the Spanish flu was that normally flu outbreaks target the very young and the very old. The Spanish flu targeted people around 20 so a lot of the people who had just gotten home from the war, uh, a lot of people that were doing kind of the driving of societal norms, a lot of them died. A lot. In fact, that's that's the one that was pointed to the most uh, a couple of years ago when that, um, what was it, H1N1 was going around that was targeting kind of a little bit older people. Right. Um, that was kind of spooky about it. This The last time that that had happened was the Spanish flu that killed millions of people. Right you get this sort of nihilistic outlook after something like that. Times are good. We could have died. Let's party.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. Um, Except all the booze is, uh, is illegal.
0: Yeah. That's one pretty big hangup, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you, you also get the flapper movement out of this. Nice. Um, 19th amendment passed August, 1920. Women can vote now. So time to celebrate. Started cutting their hair in bobs, wearing those long straight cut dresses, listening to the jazz music. <laughs> uh, and they wanted to smoke and drink and do all the things that men did as well. Uh, real loosening of, of uh, sexual mores at this point. What a crazy time. If you want to do all this smoking and drinking and casual sex. Yeah, there's pretty much one place to do it socially, and that's the speakeasy. I mean, all these other methods of getting beer, uh, of getting booze are for people who have been drinking a very long time and want to just continue quietly drinking. It's not really a social act. Making all this wine at home and not being able to take it anywhere,
1: it's not a social act. It's just a matter of having it for yourself to drink. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So the saloon was was expressly male, but the saloons don't exist anymore. What you have is these illegally unlicensed speakeasies where, what are you going to do, call the cops? Because a woman shows up. No. What are you gonna or who are you gonna hire for for entertainers? All the all the legitimate lounges, which sound very boring at this point, by the way, uh are hiring all the white musicians, so the only place that a lot of black musicians can get work is in speakeasies. So that's where they're working, and the music that they're playing is is jazz music, so it gets very, very popular. Yeah, a lot of really interesting social stuff about the 20s comes out of this. Uh, this necessity for a place to socialize and drink in this booming economy, in this new America, and with these new social uh, standings that, that women have managed to, to finally get for themselves. Going to Speakeasy was really socially acceptable. Everyone knew that everyone was doing it. Nobody was going to rat anybody out for going. Yeah. Sure, they got raided sometimes. They just pop back up. There was too little risk and too much reward for running a speakeasy to keep them away.
1: I guess it's, it feels weird to have something um, illegal that recently that is it's that wide uh, widely accepted to just to just flaunt it, right?
0: Um, are you aware of the? Um, I hate to bring a contemporary again, but are you aware of the stores in Toronto that are? selling marijuana now, even though it's still illegal? They're storefronts. They're they're still they're still dealers. They still get raided all the time and shut down. But there are so many of them.
1: And now that you're saying it, I mean that's an even more like it's it's such a perfect
0: Well at least the speakeasies analogous. had a back door that you had to know somebody to know where it was. Right. These just show up and pretend like it's legal to buy a a pot brownie off.
1: I actually didn't head of know the that there were just regular storefronts doing that so mm-hmm. that's kind of crazy
0: again the, the parallels to today are, are very very interesting yeah no the the, the societal flaunting of it is and I, and I mean there there are other analogs today with you know go go to a concert and try try not to smell weed yeah good luck oh i do try i fail <laughs> it, it's it's everywhere yeah no it's it's there, there's these certain contexts under which it's it's uh it's kind of allowed and you know, no, you're not going to show up at work uh, and openly drink, but you might see your workmates at the speakeasy and never talk to them at work. Same as you might see one of your workmates at a concert. And maybe you smoke in a joint. And maybe you don't bring it up the next day. Fair enough. It's it's just this it's just this underlying acceptance, right? Yeah, and and the jury's just never convicted. Really, anyone that was that was arrested for for running a speakeasy, they they never really got that much in the way of consequences. Raids happened and people got put in jail overnight, and that was about it. It's a thing that happened sometimes, and what you got in return was uh the chance to participate in popular culture and society at the po- at that point in time. Now, the stuff that these speakeasies were selling wasn't good. A lot of times they were buying this bathtub gin, this uh uh moonshine from from small distributors, or they were buying from organized crime syndicates or you know, various uh various locations but like we talked about with the whiskey sour the the stuff that they were serving was kind of designed to make it palatable so they're gonna get you they're gonna get you drunk don't worry they'll take care of that
1: but they want to make some extra sugar Uh or some extra lemon juice yeah to get to get you through Mm -hmm. we'll we'll get you there they'll get
0: oh yeah they've got your back don't worry about it (laughs) And, and really, that's the rise of the modern cocktail in a lot of ways. When you think cocktails these days, other than a rather small number, most of them are mixed with something sweet, something tart, something, you know, it's a lot of times masking the taste of the of the actual alcohol you're using.
1: And that's fair. I mean, I, I don't think you and I are necessarily in this category, but I, I certainly know of, of a lot of people who, who drink, you know, re- relatively often they have the occasional drink, but it's very clear they don't like the taste of alcohol. Mm-hmm. They yep. drink things specifically that that there's leave a very, that out.
0: There's a very lucrative market for alcoholic drinks that do not taste like alcohol. The difference being now it's a preference then it was a necessity right. to some extent. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's it's uh, it, it was a wild wild time. But yeah, the speakeasies brought you know brought jazz into white American society. There's a whole episode on jazz. Uh, that you can take a look at, really good one too. I'm actually very proud of that one. <laughs> it's sort of really marched in lockstep with this sort of anti-authoritarian, rebellious streak that was going through society at this point in time. The relatively liberated status of women, the somewhat, you know, just barely starting to relax, at least in the north, uh, relations between white people and and minorities. A lot of that is because you can't really make those rules in a speakeasy. You just can't. It's already illegal. What are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, I suppose you could have somebody thrown out, but but they could turn around and rat you out. So, like, yeah, yeah, do you it. don't want
1: to give anybody a reason to uh, to to make the fun stop. Everything about a speakeasy is
0: oriented towards inclusiveness uh, and discreteness and having a good time. I get why there's some romance around that. <laughs> yeah. so i mean so far prohibition doesn't sound so bad actually sounds kind of fun (laughs) Yeah. yeah but we wouldn't be here if there wasn't a little bit more to it a little bit of a darker side and i think when we come back next time we'll we'll pick up with uh with the seedy underbelly
1: of prohibition sounds great
0: Temperance as a policy had been put into place, no matter how little the general public seemed to agree with it, and that meant massive demand for a contraband substance. Homebrewing was prevalent, but it wasn't enough to keep the nation in drink, and that leads to one thing, a black market. Next time on HI101, we'll talk about that market, as well as the eventual repeal of Prohibition. That episode will be up on November 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca it doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been Hi-101. <laughs>